Hey everybody, welcome back to the Combat Chain. I am your host, Patrick. I should have bet the house on Ethan Van Sant Shaw. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Adam. CMH stands for Canadian Massacres Hayden Philipchuk. Adam, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Pat. Uh, as always, it's good to be here. Um, yeah, some exciting stuff coming out of the, the Goliath Gauntlet in the first week. Um, some big upsets, uh, things I did not expect to see. Um, yeah, how are you? I'm great. I'm great. Yeah, the, the Goliath Gauntlet's really, uh, I think people are really looking at it now, and uh, it's it's bringing some of the best players in the world with questionable uh, camera setups, but high-quality <laughs> gameplay. Uh, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it later, but, like, has to be the upset of the century. Uh, Man Saint just takes Leviah the steamroller all over Pablo Pintor. So we'll get into that uh, a little bit. But holy crap! <laughs> yeah, it happened. My bracket shit the bed right there. That was it. I think that everyone's was it. bracket uh, was. <laughs> there is there is no our our panel of experts are over. There's no perfect brackets left after the <laughs> opening matches. Um. Oh, one of the games yet uh, yet to be played uh, is featuring our guest this week, and uh, he is Brendan Patrick, one of the founding fathers of the flesh and blood competitive scene in the U.S., being one of the genuinely earliest adopters of the game. Along with Hayden Dale, he is one half of the Arsenal Pass Pod. <laughs> Along with Hayden Dale, he is one half of the Arsenal Pass Podcast and YouTube channel, coming up on 5,000 subscribers on YouTube. It is widely considered the number one podcast uh, in the game. Uh, the Arsenal Pass influence can be felt far and wide across the content sphere, especially right here on this very show. Uh, you can see him in San Jose at Worlds November 4th through 6th, not as a competitor, but as a caster of the event. Brendan Patrick, welcome to the program. How y'all doing tonight? Fired up. Thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. Uh, it's been an exciting weekend of uh, kind of flesh and blood action, and we're, we're, of course, happy to have you on. Yeah, the Ethan Van Sant upset. I actually had the pleasure of playing against Ethan in uh, Pro Tour number two. And I think I said this on the Arsenal Pass podcast, and I don't mean it in a bad way. It is 100% complimentary, but I did not expect him to be as good as he was. I thought, you know, plays Levia. It's kind of just, you know, it's a pet deck, but I played him in PT number two. He was on Levia, but legitimately a very uh, cognizant player, very aware of everything that was going on, was tracking uh, sort of the, you know, my card, not only the cards that could potentially be in my hand, but very aware of my graveyard, my pitch, and exactly what my deck was trying to do. I was actually quite impressed. Um, so Ethan Van Sant with the upset over Pablo Pinto. Well, I'm surprised because it's Levia. I am not surprised that it's uh, Ethan Van Sant. Ethan really does not get enough credit uh, for his his acumen uh, in the game. He his early stream, so he's been streaming Talishar right weekly. Now he was getting ready for PT, getting ready for US, getting ready. Now he's getting ready for Worlds. Uh, his prep for uh, US Nats on Fi actually helped me become a better Fi player. Uh, just he was just speaking out loud some of these concepts that uh, might have seemed kind of kind of foundational and you know, rudimentary to him but it was really like eye-opening at how you're you know you're he was talking out those individual lines and just hitting hitting notes that 
not a lot of people were hitting on Fi, and it made a whole lot of sense for how he was setting up his lines and getting him out there. And, uh, you know, it makes you wonder, you know, uh, if it wasn't for, for Olivia, you know, where would he be? <laughs> yeah. When he gets serious about the game, it's funny when you play him in, uh, when you play him in person, even at the highest level of competitive events, he does the exact same thing where he talks out not only all of his plays, but what he thinks all of your plays are as well. Um, just a very talkative player just runs through the lines and very, I honestly appreciate that very much. Uh, especially when it comes to clear communications, you pass through, pass through phases and priority and just making the game state very clear. He's pretty much the sort of, I mean, he gets close to being the gold standard of that in flesh and blood so far. I'm sure that he's someone who's going to come into his own when it comes to, you know, being appreciated. I do think that he is, uh, underappreciated as a competitive player right now. But, uh, you know, still early in the journey, and I think that people via the streams and now via the glass calling are becoming more aware. Absolutely. Um, we're going to dive into that and more, but before that, no one escapes the origin story. Brendan, who are you, and how the hell did you get here? So my origin story, it's kind of funny because I actually didn't play card games before Flesh and Blood. Um, I had played video games, so I had a bit of a gamer background, I guess. But uh, yeah, I was back in Texas um, after living in Thailand for a bit. I'd come back here for sort of a medical issue, um, which had landed me just, I guess, back home. Yeah, I grew up here, uh, essentially. And was cruising by this card shop called Reaper Game Store, uh, owned by uh, Bill down here. And I think I was going to get like a dual deck to play with my partner at the time, because that was like what I like to do. That was my first exposure to card games. There's a little thing called Flesh and Blood being paid. And so I just impulse, impulse bought like a couple boxes, was opening it, played some games, put the Irodex and instantly hooked. You know, best game I've ever played. All the games felt very close. Uh, and yeah, uh, started playing locally, had a lot of success. <laughs> I was had quite the record going into Austin, um, which honestly did not make me very confident in me. <laughs> did the opposite where I was like, oh, wow, I'm probably reinforcing some very, very bad habits here. So yeah, I got to the calling in Austin, met James White and Sasha Markovic, um, introduced myself to Sasha, and that was sort of the origin story of our friendship, and we've sort of been, I guess, close to best friends for about three years now. But um, yeah, went through that tournament um, with him, made top eight, lost him in the finals, and then decided to commit to playing the first constructed calling over in New Zealand, and really the rest is history after that. And via Sasha, I met uh, met Hayden Dale, and from there we started Arsenal Pass, which was actually intended to be a limited-only, sort of limited resource-esque podcast, just doing set reviews and things like that. And it has grown, sort of grown from from that original uh, idea. I would say so. No, it definitely is still, uh, I, your limited videos are one of the highlights. Uh, for I know for both of us, it's a it's a real treat when those come out, and it's you know it, it, it's uh there's not a lot out there that you guys that does it like that. Like you you really hit every card in depth, uh, credible analysis, um, and it's it is quite enjoyable. Yeah, when we started our Soul Pass, actually there was almost there's pretty much genuinely no competition in Fab content creation like at all. There was another podcast called Session Blood. That was mm -hmm. just by default as being the only podcast, also just the most popular and the most successful. And they were actually hanging up, uh, sort of hanging it up to go work at Legendary Studios, and we used that as our 
a jumping off point to, you know, maybe get in the space. But I mean, when I talk about there being no content, like you would go on YouTube and if you searched X here versus X here, nothing would come up. Like Mm -hmm. there was, there was nothing. So I think we got very lucky with our, when we got into the game because there wasn't a lot to compete with. And uh, yeah, I think that the hardest part of any, any content creation is probably going to be the very beginning, getting those initial people to sort of, you know, watch or listen and um yeah because because of the way the the land they can you know the landscape of content was at that point we got uh, we were able to sort of be a first mover in the podcast space or close to it no we can definitely uh uh speak on the competition that is the content space now it does feel like there's a uh, uh, you know you're trying to make your mark you know where you can and find your niche uh and there's two dozen other podcasts and content channels doing roughly you know roughly the same numbers kind of the same thing how do you you know how do you break out break out and uh in and uh, separate yourselves is kind of kind of where we're at uh at the moment you just went on a huge trip around europe uh i am curious about that trip and uh if you could fill us in on some of the highlights here yeah, for sure. So, you know, obviously it started in Lille, which is probably my least favorite stop of the entire trip. Not because it's France. And I know that France gets a rap as sort of kind of being, you know, it's France, right? But ultimately Lille was just, uh, it was a little warm. I was, I ha- actually had never been to Europe in summer. And of course, no air conditioning. It's a little bit brutal for the first uh, four days or so. Then it cooled down a little bit. Um, but yeah, after the Pro Tour hopped off to... I believe we went to uh, Amsterdam initially, uh, went there for a few days, then over to Prague, from Prague over to Germany, went kind of all throughout Germany, then down to Zurich, Zurich to Austria, Austria effectively back home. Some of the highlights, though, is I did about I did 24 hours in this place in Germany, the city called Dortmund, because a friend from high school uh, lived there, and he actually brought me to a Bo Russia Dortmund soccer or football game, and it was absolutely wild. They were lighting flares, and this like eighty thousand person stadium looked like it was about to catch on fire. Uh, and we went out, you know, kind of drinking after, and it was just crazy, crazy scene. And yeah, I mean, I was there. I literally got there in the morning, picked from the train station. We went all the way until like two, three a.m., and then I woke up, took the first train out back to Zurich. Um, and oh gosh, what was other other highlights? It's all of it was amazing, to be honest. Uh, I was really surprised at Vienna. Uh, like in Europe, as you like with a lot of these European cities, you know, there's like a there's like an area where there's a couple of beautiful buildings and you go look at them. But in Vienna, it's actually like the entire city. It's just like the highlight that other of of what other cities would be. It's absolutely stunning and it's massive as well. I had a friend there who kind of took me around and hosted me, and that was it. It it was awesome. And then Switzerland, I think. You can't compare to Switzerland. You're in Zurich. Uh, it's like one of the nicest cities in the world. It has like a very like this like freshwater lake, almost like Lake Tahoe here in California. Or yeah, in California. And mm-hmm. then you go 40 minutes out, and you're in the like the most beautiful sort of hiking and mountainous area. And it's honestly unbelievable. <laughs> uh, the the only bad thing is that Zurich, like Switzerland in general is just crazy expensive. <laughs> like basic stuff is. It's unbelievable. It's like three, four times the uh, the cost of any other country. That does sound terrible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess you pay for the uh, the scenery there. Hundred percent. 
so part of your I, part of your part of your travels and your uh, your kind of journey here, I saw a lot of pics on uh, Instagram. Uh, you seem to be in pretty good shape these days. Uh, you've you've been spending a good amount of time in the gym on your way to losing close to a hundred pounds, if I'm not mistaken. Is that uh, is that accurate? Yeah, close to it. I did sort of the classic where um, I got fit before college, sort of trying to reinvent myself out of high school. Uh, I wasn't over overweight or anything like that before, but I was just a very skinny kid all throughout high school. So I decided to try to get fit and put on some muscle. Uh, I guess I was kind of successful. Played rugby all throughout college, and then post rugby. Um, yeah, just gains, gained like, you know, got up to like 260, 270. Uh, it's actually not that uncommon from what I say. It's like people who go through, you know, either whether it's getting like super fit, uh, or you're playing sports in college, then after kind of going on that journey of, uh, not playing sports, let's say that, but yeah, Mm -hmm. down from like 260 down here to about 180. Now, honestly, 80% of it was done in about three to four months. And then the rest of it took about two years the last the last bit is really really tough well i can definitely speak on the uh losing it and gaining all the weight uh part of that but that is that is quite the body transformation and congratulations because as as i was just saying as someone who is basically the complete inverse of that i know how difficult that really is uh that process did help inspire the fab fit challenge in july which was uh heavily embraced by a lot of the the community um you spoke a little bit about your fitness jersey uh journey but uh the response from the fab fit challenge and your goals uh what are your goals in the future you know fitness wise for you and and the fab fit challenge mm, it's it's interesting i'm not too sure because i think if we did it like it has to be infrequent enough that it's special uh but mm-hmm. frequent enough that I guess that we keep doing it because I, th- at least last time I had no idea sort of the impact that it would have. And I was generally surprised at how positive it was. I, I know just in the Arsenal past discord, um, we had a, you know, a couple hundred people that were sort of in the intimate group, like talking, updating every day, sort of like what their exercise was and what they were eating. And, you know, we had some just incredible transformations at that. There's a relatively popular person in the community named T Tebow. Uh, I think mm-hmm. he's he not only plays it competitively, it does a bit of content on his own. Librarian mm-hmm. in the Solana, I believe. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And his transformation is absolutely ridiculous. I can't, I met, I saw him in Dallas uh, at the SCG con and I think he was down. It was either four, it's either between it's 40 or 60 pounds, something absolutely unbelievable. Um, and yeah, I know he's recently put up a picture sort of, of, like his face only from a couple like a couple months ago and the the transformation is already is just unbelievable so i think that for me the idea that i even contributed one percent to that makes it all worth it right one percent to one person's sort of uh, beginning of their journey um it's probably one of the more rewarding things i've ever done to be honest that is that's terrific. Um, do you feel like the so obviously you put you you spend a lot of time, uh, you know, on yourself and your your physical fitness. Do you do you feel the physical work away from flesh and blood cards has affected your flesh and blood experience, either positive or negatively? Um, for me, the physical fitness stuff is less about aesthetics and even like 
kind of like a long-term health, although that is like a great side effect. If I'm, if I'm not, if I'm not being very physically active, I just tend to become unhappy and there's almost no way for me to get around it. So I honestly do it to like my main motivation to stay fit um, is to just kind of, it, it helps my mind rest. Um, mm-hmm. and I think when my mind, when my mind is able to rest a bit, I'm a lot happier and that's just, it's just something I've learned over the years. And, <clears throat> uh, I just, that's, I just have to keep at it. And, um, yeah, that's, that's, all, it's kind of a weird answer, but that, that's, no, that's no, why right I do all of it is right there is just, a just to kind of, just for the day to day happiness and calmness. Cause without that, I just kind of get a bit cooped up, I think. Definitely. No, I, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of people out there that kind of facetiously throw out, you know, it's like, look good naked, you know, do, do other stuff, but it really is like a, a very integral part of like mental, mental health and, and, and happiness. Right. I mean, it's just, uh, it's something that people, you know, are most of the time kind of lacking. I like, I'm a big guy. I used to be physically fit. I'm not. And I, I get that, the, the, the being unhappy part very much, you know, so I can really, I can relate, uh, to that, unfortunately. Um, all right, we're going to pivot away from, uh, from fitness. We're going to start talking about some flesh and blood. So we're going to do, we're going to, we're going to talk about the 800 pound gorilla in the room. You have a reputation as being an extremely hard worker when it comes to tournament prep. And, uh, I want to dive into that, but first in May, Arsenal Pass came to Pro Tour New Jersey with Kano as your deck, a deck that was revealed to be a relatively last-minute audible for the team. That pivot to Kano had ramifications for players that can still be felt today. Uh, and uh, uh, for those interested, you can you can watch our, or listen to our interviews with uh, the likes of Matt Folks and Michael Hamilton uh, in previous episodes. Uh, so hashtag shameless plug, go check those out. Given the power of hindsight, is there anything you would change about the approach the team took in selecting the Kano deck? Yeah, so it's pretty tough because like Kano in that meta was genuinely quite bad, quite bad. So we had developed a deck a long, multiple months before to target Viscerai. Um, if you remember, I think that was before, what card did they ban in Viscerai in Classic Constructor? I think it was Blood Skelata. Yep. Yeah, Skelata. Yep. So it was actually quite good against that Viscerai deck because it didn't have access to Spell Void. Um, it played relatively low AB, and Viscerai just had sort of this play pattern where they would tend to commit their entire hand towards you, uh, either via the combo or setting up. So it once Viscerai left the format, and Starvo really looked to be... You know, the pick as well as Chain coming back in, the Kino deck that we had on hand was actually very, very bad. Uh, we pretty much threw it away. So Sasha Markovic comes to Dallas, Texas uh, about a week before, stays with me. You know, we're testing a lot of Starvo, a lot of Chain, looking like we're going to end up on Chain. It's about that Sunday before we leave. Uh, I think we left on the Monday where we try to tweak a few cards, basically. We add uh, basically cards that on i think face value looked pretty pretty terrible like voltic bolt um it's effectively you know two for six or you know three for six and does nothing else and we also added aether spindle which is although the opt is quite powerful um just on the math matrix also quite undervalued and they aren't these sort of these, these like multiplicative damage uh, effects that kano really benefits from 
But what we found out is that for the Kano deck to actually be successful, what it needs to do is it just needed to poke the opponent below threshold like 32. Because at 12 resources, at, at 32, it's a double pump on Wildfire, which is base 32 damage. And that was uh, effectively an OTK. Um, so we just found out we had to maneuver uh, the deck via you know, poke damage uh, effectively. So we started having a bit more success, but it was still really struggling into chain with arcane barrier and starvo with uh well sorry not chain with arcane barrier chain with spell void and starvo with spell void as well starvo also has access to spell void um so i sort of spiritually just think i'm gonna commit to kano uh leaving that sunday sasha less committed probably more serious competitive player well much more seriously competitive player than me um at least in his his approach as well uh i'm a bit more I don't know. I kind of like to have fun, so I'm thinking I'm I'm pretty much committed to King at this point. Get to Jersey, uh, crank out the decks, get the last reps. Hayden Dale has brought freaking Dash. <laughs> he he thinks he's playing Dash uh, at this point, which is uh, I'm sorry, but in PT number one, Dash was a a terrible deck to play. Um, so he gets convinced off, and we end up sort of taking that deck. So it honestly very much was a very, was a last minute audible, and came from adding what I think on the surface looks like quite bad cards into the deck. And I think that that's what honestly makes Kano so interesting is that if you look at like the Michael Hamilton theory of flesh and blood and a lot of the guys in New York, like Michael Fang as well, I know they're testing together now. They have a very value oriented way of addressing the game and sort of breaking it down, really looking at how do I get the most raw number out of my cards and, you know, over a turn cycle, have a higher sort of threshold than my opponent. Honestly, looking at like numbers like 14 and 16, right? If you can get 16 out of your your turn cycle, you're you should be ahead of your opponent. And I think that this is quite groundbreaking. You see Michael take it to immense success. But at the same time, when you're looking at something like a combo deck or an arcane damage deck, it doesn't exactly work. And I think that Kano was sort of the diamond in the rough there, where we were able to take this sort of more abstract idea of like playing Aether Wildfire and getting Aether Wildfire spell in between Blazing Aether and doing this sort of OTK combo. Uh, and we kind of, to do that, you kind of have to throw out the whole idea of uh, this whole math and value idea, because Kano, uh, via, via that approach, is just such a bad deck. But um, yeah, definitely was like a sort of last minute audible onto Kano there at PT1. Uh, Brennan, instead of competing, uh, you're now getting ready for casting. Uh, you casted most of the Fall Brawl last year, and uh, you're going to be doing it again this year. And you're doing Worlds. Uh, casting events has been something in your crosshairs for some time. Uh, and now, uh, with people pointing all the way back to your, your commentary over the Discord gauntlet uh, as uh, your proof of your ability to do this, uh, how do you... Um, how do you get from wanting uh, to cast to getting on the team for Worlds? So I actually had cast a, a calling in the past too. It's just a, it's a little bit of an unknown calling. It was the the Blitz calling. I gosh, it's probably back in 2020, and it was done virtually. So myself, Sasha Markovic, who was working at Legend Story at the time, in Hayden Dale actually cast this tournament. So I had a little bit of a history with the studio um, and and casting. I think. They probably didn't care too much about the the gauntlet, but I had recently come off the um, the Ohio tournament. I was able to cast that tournament sort of last minute with Flake and Charmer, uh, which really helped that uh, helped that portfolio. But getting to transferring from a player to a caster, I think it was it was one of the things I actually always wanted to do. Um, but 
at the time that I was originally asked to join the the casting team, which was back at the first Vegas calling, um, I decided to turn it down because I felt like at that time I was well positioned as a competitive player to try and become the best player in the world. As arrogant as that might sound, that's just kind of the way that I had approached it in my in my mind is like I wanted to try to be the best. And if that's not the case, or I'm not I don't have the resources and or time to put in the effort it takes to become that then I become drastically less interested in it. And back then, um, I felt like we were on that path. Uh, nevertheless, fast forward a bit. Um, it just It's much more sustainable for me. What I enjoy fundamentally about Flesh and Blood and about the entire experience is the social experience. And casting is a much more sustainable uh, way to approach that in the long run. Um, and I genuinely enjoy, uh, enjoy casting. Nice. Is so, there... are you... Go ahead, Pat. Sorry. Blah, 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 blah. Um, is is this so? Is casting the long term the long term plan here? If you had to pick right now, competing out. Well, obviously at Worlds right now you're casting, but if you had to pick one or the other, are you are you a caster? I think I would I would choose casting moving forward. <clears throat> um, there's the time commitment, uh, like the mental commitment and all that to try to be like the competitive player. I don't think that I could sort of just have my toes dipped in to be competitive. Like I said, like it's either all or nothing for me. And also to be completely honest, I do believe at this point in the game that there is like legitimate talent that is starting to show up where I will have to work a ridiculous amount to, to kind of put up, <laughs> compete with the likes of uh, likes of Michael Hamilton, Matt Fox, uh, Pablo Pintor. Like these players are genuinely talented at the game. Whereas I felt like I came into this as my first TCG, and maybe through the you know creating having a lucky circle of people that I ended up being around with Sasha, Hayden, and just like all the people I've met in Fab, uh, I was able to sort of, I, I guess, kind of shorten that learning curve. But ultimately, I don't think I can reasonably compete with these these super super talented players at, at this point and um, yeah I want this to be something I do for a very long time and I think casting is casting is the way to do that well, that makes sense um, uh, yeah we had DM Armada on uh, the the show last week and uh, he was talking about a, a bit of a unique approach to getting ready uh, I was curious um, do you have like going into worlds do you have any kind of approach to getting ready for casting I know you've got realm games coming up uh, this week in the fall brawl um, what's uh, what's the prep look like for you yeah so for me um, I, I haven't officially been told what role I'm going to fill whether it's color or um, the anal the analytical side. I assume it will be analytical. Um, comfortable doing both, but I just assume that's where they're going to throw me. So for me, uh, I'm approaching it like I would as if I was playing the event. I don't know if I'm going to do that for every tournament in the future, but I am fully testing. So I play Flesh and Blood for about two to three hours in the morning when I wake up, uh, and then we have <laughs> we have team testing, which is a group of probably like six. I mean, team team being light. It's kind of just a group of people. Uh, we test from 3 to 5 p.m. CST, very targeted testing, looking at specific decks, developing game plans, stuff like that. Um, and I'm wholly involved in that, and I will be up until about a week before the tournament, in which I will sort of step back, uh, leave that group, and then kind of use that time to circle circle around with other teams and other players that are playing the event uh, and kind of talk to them about their preparations so I can hopefully bring that to the booth 
uh, and build more of a story around a lot of these players, which is something that I'm really looking forward to doing. And I think that Flesh and Blood has started to do now, but we can really push that to, to I don't know, better. I think it will make the the viewing experience better for um, uh, for the people watching is if we can build stories around these players, players like Michael Hamilton, Pablo Pitor, but even people like, you know, the card guys, uh, the Hyperloops, the Wolfpack, like all these these sort of teams and communities have come together. So, yeah, my preparation for this tournament is actually sort of a full pro testing schedule and it's consisting of about four to five hours of flesh and blood a day. Now you tar- you mentioned the the team testing, which is a, a targeted testing session. Your other time there is that spent more kind of broad stroke, getting like a general understanding of what's going on there, or how how are you treating that uh, that other two to two to three hours uh, of testing solo? Yeah, so it's honestly targeting the way that if it like if I was literally going to be playing playing the tournament, right? So trying to figure out the best deck, developing the game plans, and sort of tweaking the deck as we go. In terms of what role I am, I will tend to fill the gauntlet deck role more, right? Because I'm not playing the tournament, and I want to have as much experience on as many decks as possible. So it tends to be where I'm going, but at least historically, like in our process, at least in me and Sasha Markovic's process, he tends to be sort of the bright idea brewer coming up with these kind of crazy decks whether you know they're combo decks or they're just really bad decks and then i tend to reel him in and sort of help tweak the deck um look at the game plans and also make sure we're not playing uh playing playing bad cards so still very much a deck building aspect and looking to develop the the best deck uh for the tournament but um yeah if 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 there's ever a question of like oh should Brendan be playing, uh, you know, this deck or that deck or the gauntlet? I'm, I should be on the gauntlet deck. So that's that tends to be where I land. You talk about uh, as we're coming up on Worlds, how uh, how important that that kind of character narrative can be to really help uh, the audience through the weekend. Here, uh, you've hailed GP Richmond 2018 repeatedly as the gold standard for event coverage. Now. In the, hypo- in the hypothetical shoes, you're in complete control over worlds, and you have the power to cover any one person in the event. Who are you aiming that camera on the whole weekend? Yeah, so GP Reduke is interesting because if I'm, I'm trying to evaluate like why it's so successful to me, and it is to an extent because we do follow one player, we do follow Reduke, who is sort of the gold standard of communication and professionalism. I think when it comes to a game of Magic: The Gathering, but at the same time, I think that the the fundamental thing that makes it awesome is that you have this large, you have this sort of expanded camera view that looks at, you know, it has a very clear view of of sort of the top down gameplay that we're used to, but at the same time, you have next to it, you have this large, this large panel where you can see sort of your protagonist, right? Like your player, uh, and they're mic'd up. And I think that that something about that is so charming, and it develops so much empathy between you and the player. When I can hear them talk, when I can hear them go through their players, I can hear the banter on the table. Well, I think that following the single player was relatively important, and we did follow probably the perfect player for that. I do wonder if this model could be used without following a single player, and if it could just be sort of the standard of how, uh, of how like, uh, sort of, I don't know, the presentation, uh, the coverage would go. Yeah, coverage is what mm-hmm, I'm looking mm-hmm. for. I wonder if we could do that in sort of a somewhat open field. I don't know how crazy it would be with like random people or effectively kind of random people being mic'd up, but. I really love to hear the players talking 
uh, and have this sort of large uninterrupted view of gameplay and player with commentary doing what I think commentary really is, which is kind of like a light sort of talking of the the more analytical things that are gone, maybe a bit of play-by-play, but it's quite light and over the top, right? Instead of being sort of the main focus and it looks like the gameplay is kind of second. So something about that with GP Richmond 2018, I felt, I feel like it was super successful. I've watched that tournament before I even knew how to play magic, learned how to play magic via that tournament and have gone back and watched it back again multiple times. Uh, I just think it's, it was an incredible success. If we had to follow one single player, um, it's tough, right? It's tough. I, I honestly have no idea. You'd be pretty safe picking Michael Hamilton that he's going to day two and he's going to top eight. So you have that singular character to follow. Matt Rogers, obviously all, a very good pick. Pablo Pintor, great pick as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's even players. I don't know. We sort of have this 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 weird situation where we have like in Flesh and Blood right now where we have, I don't know, these players that sit so high up top, right? They, they're, yep. they're sort of, their achievements are in, insane. Whether it's Tarek Patel, double national champion, Michael Hamilton basically gets a PTI at every event he goes to, wins almost everything he touches, Pablo Pintor, back-to-back Pro Tour. There's so many choices. Um, it's hard to say, but I think there's even players that don't fall in, in sort of that category that would be great to follow. People like Fino Black, um, I would personally love to to follow Dante Delfico because I think it's freaking hilarious. But yeah, there's a ton, and I don't have a specific one that that comes to mind or that is sort of the person immediately. But I do think there's a lot of candidates. It definitely is, and Flesh and Blood seems to be more um, not necessarily team oriented, but it is. It's kind of it's kind of turning into like. I don't know if you follow wrestling too much, but it feels like there's a whole lot of stables being formed at the moment. And they're all, I think they're all going to be converging at world. You get, you get dragon shield, wolf pack. Uh, uh, there's a whole uh, team uh, with top deck keep with uh, Tyler Horsepool. Uh, even the, the Hyperloops, all those, uh, all those coming together in uniform, the Jersey guys. I don't know what the, where's the New Jersey team there. Uh, I forget. I forget there. Is that the card guys? And no, there's card guys. The card guys are based out of actually they're like national. There's one. I Michael Dalton is on that team. I know that, uh, but I forget what it. Eye of the Storm, something like that. Um, mm. But there's a few of them, right? There's a few of them that have those jerseys. Ah, all right. I digress. Uh, Worlds is we're going to continue uh, Worlds conversation here. Uh, it is looking to be the biggest challenge of the year for players uh, for obvious reasons, the mix and placement of the three different formats being chief among them. How does the player who's going to win worlds set themselves apart from the pack in, in the, this particular setting here in worlds? So the theory and the idea is that the best player is the one, right? The, the person who's the most well-rounded, most talented will win. Uh, strategically looking at it, I think that you like there is some consideration on how the rounds break out, right? With five rounds of blitz being the way that you end, sort of being your breakers to top eight. I think that there's some way of like there's like some sort of risk analysis and what blitz deck you pick. Like for instance, if you're looking at the current blitz meta, um, let's say that Icelander and Old Him are the breakout decks, right? I think the Fi was you know showed up, it was quite popular, but it was not very good. So let's say Old Him Icelander are very good, and one of those is quote unquote the best deck, and it's a bit clear. Well, there's there's a counter deck that targets both of those, and it's called Prism. But Prism is pretty bad into the aggro decks. So do you take the risk of bringing Prism, which is 
probably a quote-unquote worse deck than something like Icelander or Oldham and try to sort of what we like to colloquially call gem format your way into these good matchups and somehow dog, dodge the aggro decks. My argument would be that, you know, at that at those rounds, probably not. I don't think it'd be a good idea, but it's still an ongoing discussion. You start out with classic constructor. I can't remember. Do you start with classic constructor or blitz? Um, uh, first two rounds or, or draft. Or draft, yeah. So starting out draft is always that that doesn't really change much, I don't think. I think when it comes to classic, you still gotta kinda pick the best deck. Um and there's not a lot of there's not as much metagaming as there was in some previous formats, I don't believe. Like I felt like the there was a lot of metagaming while Prism was around because you know Prism was sort of always that nuclear option in case you expected a bunch of uh you know, a bunch of guardians or something like that. But yeah, I think that you want to be very practiced in uprising drafts. Uh uprising draft does get written off uh pretty quickly about, you know, whether it's the 14 card packs, it's the force fi or yada yada yada. You want to win the die roll. I think that we've seen uh, like throughout like throughout the recent tournaments and the big ones that there's more depth to uprising draft. While forcing fi is definitely not uh it's not completely false. It, it is a strategy. Like we saw Team Dragon Shield heavily favor Jermai. Uh and honestly it looked like they were forcing Jermai uh based off the decks that they were drafting and saw a lot of success. We saw I think Michael Hamilton played a lot of Icelander. I know my friend Dante played a lot of Icelander to go six oh at PT two. Like that draft format has more depth than a lot of people give it credit for. And I think you want to come prepared. I think the last thing you want to do is sort of write it off as this like format where you have no agency and it's just like this, you know, this BS where you're just going to try to force fi. Um, I don't think so. Cause those, those draft formats are, are really important. Uh, those draft rounds are really important. So yeah, draft definitely <laughs> circle back to it. Go listen to some of the limited podcasts, whether it's attack for 20 MNR um, stuff like that to prepare. Bring the best class constructed deck you can. Um, and Blitz, I also think that I would, for Blitz, and this, I think the Blitz is the one that I put the most thought into. If I was going to that tournament, I would prepare to bring the deck to Blitz rather than the deck that beats the deck. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, there is, you mentioned that Uprising is kind of written off. Blitz seems to be kind of written off uh, as well in most in most camps did the bands do enough to really kind of slow it down a bit to make it more palatable to to the people who hate it uh yeah. so to speak a lot of those bands are really good like bloodshade squad definitely need to go massive pouncy links definitely need to go storm Shriders in icelander definitely need to go icelander was a hundred percent broken out of its mind when it has storm Shriders, was probably close to the power level of like combo this um but I do think it's a bit heavy-handed <laughs> because it also really wrecked Kano. Uh, no, mm-hmm. But I do think that Icelander is still the best deck. I do. And I don't think the Stormshatters did nearly enough. I don't think they even target really what makes that deck super powerful. I guess they stop it from like taking you know, double spelling as uh, when it takes us double turns at the end of the game. But uh, Blitz is a really interesting format right now, I think. I think that Blitz in the past has been looked at is this format where you want to do the most unfair thing possible, right? Like you want to play Reinar, win on turn zero. You want to play Combo Fist, run on mm-hmm. turn zero and turn one. <clears throat> I think in a format where you can't win on turn zero or immediately on turn one, it actually flips to the complete opposite and you want to be playing the most fair deck possible and want to be playing the value deck, right? So that Icelander deck that I play at the Battle Harden, 
it is it's a Michael Hamilton deck. It was it's his team's deck. Michael Fang lended it to me for the lent it to me for the weekend. But it's just about numbers. It's about getting the most value um, over each side of the turn cycle, right? Whether you're attacking or you're defending, right? Has the sink blows to defend, has the wounded balls to attack. And then at the end of the game, it takes two turns. <laughs> Sorry, a little bit of cough, but that in and of itself felt like the most powerful thing I could be doing in Blitz. Like that deck felt well, not fundamentally more powerful than anything that my opponents were trying to do. Are people going to be able to answer it? I think probably yes, and they'll develop strategies to do so. But I just want to highlight that idea that if you can't win on turn zero and you can't win on turn one, Blitz is actually the format where you want to be doing the most fair thing, and you just want to eke out those plus one or plus twos of um, sort of turns like value over your opponent. If you were, um, if you were, if you had the choice or the power to structure worlds however you saw fit, is this how you would do it, or would you do it uh, a little differently? Nah, classic. <laughs> I would do classic only. I think that, um, at least from what I've heard from an overwhelming, if not uh, pretty much every professional player that I've talked to, the idea of dual format tournaments was really cool. And this idea that, you know, uh, this you find the most well-rounded player and like, the, I mean, that was the ethos behind it, right? I think it's, it's for the most part, quite disliked. Um, it could be, I could be talking to like a biased group of people and I could be wrong. But I do, if I was playing the tournament, I, I, I would like it to be class constructed only. And this is coming from a player that, I like limited. I kind of look at myself as a limited player and like, you know, Arsenal pass was even supposed to be just a limited podcast, but I do think that, uh, I would prefer if worlds was class constructed only. I also think that for coverage, it's much better because people can empathize with the decks and the heroes. And mm, I think the classic mm -hmm. is much more exciting to watch where up uprising and draft. And this is not because it's a, it's a bad draft format or, you know, whatever. I just think for coverage wise, You'd kind of it like when I'm looking at limited content uh, at you know kind of like a pro event, it kind of just looks like a bunch of cards being slapped at each other. That's not like oh this is the old him deck, this is the deck that I know, this is my hero versus Prism or something like that. So I think that limited kind of loses a bit of that, uh, a bit of what makes coverage exciting. Now hear me out. Classic instructed all the way through, they get to the top eight. James White just says, "Put your decks away." And go sit down at your table. And then at the table, you just see Ira and 30 cards right in front of you. And the top eight is is determined through the purest form of flesh and blood there is. Welcome, deck mirrors. Well, if that was the case, Luke Badger might actually be able to compete again. Uh, the Ira <laughs> world champion. But um, yeah, I mean, that, <laughs> those decks are kind of fun, to be honest. There's there's a lot there's a lot that goes into Ira, Ira mirrors. Um but uh, I would prefer what's that new Mansand format? How about we just do Clash? Clash, Clash, yeah. Clash. I'm actually very excited about Clash. Mansand is coming on to the podcast in November. Uh, that schedule will be out once I uh, finalize the last couple of guests here, Professor. If you're listening, I'm looking for you. Uh, but it is uh, that tournament's looking exciting. That format is looking pretty exciting as well. Uh, the specializations being the uh, kind of uh, specializations and weapons can be any uh, any rarity is is kind of the I think 
what we needed out of out of that commoner was getting a little uh commoner's still a little unbalanced and kind of broken yeah. uh, a little bit so um definitely be fun that tournament looks like it'll be fun uh too uh, obviously ethan is going to be casting that with uh lss uh staff chris buley uh co-casting that with them so looking forward to that so speaking of tournaments where uh, a bunch of people are getting together having fun the goliath gauntlet uh started this past weekend uh, i got my own going on there um you are part of the goliath gauntlet uh your match has not come on yet i i actually i i cornered flake and i go where, where are the other we, we're missing two matches from the opening rounds it's uh folks and fang and it's brendan patrick versus majin bay and uh i believe those will be released on friday have you played that game yep i played that game and uh yeah i don't think i can say the result but no, i will no, say no. I, I do have some some funny some funny stories about it so basically me and uh caleb we played our first game and as you will see it's a it's a it's an isolander mirror it's actually a bullander mirror it goes it goes relatively quick um we trade damage a lot uh there's a lot of back and forth and it's just like you can tell we both have pretty much never played that mirror. So that game finishes. We turn off our recording software. How about we play another, right? So off, we off stream. We play another. Game lasts about uh, an hour and a half. It's an absolute chess match at a slog. Completely different from the original game. <laughs> Just totally recreationally after. Because <laughs> we learned while we were playing it. We learned, we like learned how to play that game. Because it's actually, it's not super complicated but if you've never played it you don't really understand how uh the constellus works and sort of you know trading on constellus and arcane damage can be extremely inefficient sometimes how to stack the deck and you know potentially set up uh frost texas on your opponent etc etc caleb may have been one of the most disrespected players in our our preview show there i think one person picked him uh over over you but like the consensus was that it wasn't uh it wasn't close but he he out of all the ones considered like uh he was kind of thrown in with the content creator crowd in terms of like you know people coming on to that tournament that maybe didn't represent the best players in the world the man can play he's got he's got some street cred uh behind him he's he's qualified for i believe both pro tours uh is performed well basically in every tournament that he's played in flesh and blood yeah i played him at his uh his winning in back at the dallas calling the limited tales warrior one uh i played him during his winning in there so he was quite close to top eighting um and he's i mean there's something to be said i think he's one of the best uh legends retired players like in the world uh he's genuinely just very good at card games and a total a threat for sure and i can bet you one thing if we were to look at the odds on caleb versus me and mansant versus pintor i guarantee you that mansant had worse odds than caleb does so we could see upsets across the board Mm-hmm. yes there was it you know i the the one guy i do feel bad about we'll, we'll go through it uh i do want to talk i want to touch on some of these matchups that have happened so far uh, that we can talk about uh, so first we have uh, Matt Rogers taking it over Yuki Lee Bender. Uh, Yuki on uh, on Icelander. Matt Rogers bringing the tried and true dash 
uh, into the matchup. Uh, it seemed like it was going back and forth until Yuki, uh, it looks like, tried to set up Insidious Chill and Frost Tex kind of took a turn off, so to speak. Matt Rogers never let off that uh, that kind of tempo uh, gas and just just finished the game off. I think he was up 15 points uh, by the time that game ended there. Yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of close games, uh, my favorite close game is actually Isaac Crute versus Hayden Dale. That was a real nail nail biter. Oh, oh it was such a massacre. Did it, did, did you, how badly did you feel for him uh, after, after that game? That had to have been, was he tilted? How tilted was he? I mean, my money was on Isaac, to be fair, but <laughs> he tells me the story about Isaac. He's like, yeah, let's play Isaac Crute. He hits me for 32 damage, and he goes, hmm, good draw. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's exactly how I picture Isaac Crute talking. Yeah, uh, Crute over Dale. Uh, Dale, the consensus most attractive player in the tournament, according to our expert panel. Uh, but alas, a one-and-done Crute taking it over Dale. Uh, moving down, we had Hamilton over Longquest, uh, Icelander versus Fi. Uh, that one again, a back and forth affair until Hamilton's Icelander kind of takes over, gets Insidious Chills and Amulet of Ices to really disrupt Fi's uh, a game plan and really just uh, taking it, uh, taking it and finishing the game from there. Uh, you know, Fi lost a turn, never got it back. Eric Longquest, another game player uh, in the tournament, but not not necessarily long for the for for this one here yeah i mean hamilton is like the last player i want to play against on icelander the dude is just i mean he's the way he plays flesh and blood he's uh he's surgical that's a that's how i would describe his play style absolutely uh i gotta i I gotta feel for eric going like yeah i'll join this tournament sure just (laughs) i wonder who am i gonna get paired with oh you gotta face michael hamilton Oh, okay. Well, I don't have to clear off too much of my schedule, I guess. Uh, next up, we have DM Armada versus Red Zone Rogue. Uh, DM Armada bringing Dromai to the tournament. Red Zone Rogue coming in with uh, with Dash. Uh, both of them calling their decks a meme deck, so I think I have to have a talk to them about what a meme deck really is, because the Dromai seemed to be pretty... Uh, kind of kind of skewed towards the aggro a bit uh we're seeing a lot more kind of controly dromais out there but you see those ravenous rabbles and blood plays headlongs keeping the tempo up uh red zone rogue bringing that uh he, he called it a, a mimi combo dash but uh you know very i think aggro dash in its purest form <laughs> um uh, really running the running the shotgun weapon and uh just basically everything except he whiffed on one uh, I believe one boost he 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 hit a tome of Feindel and uh, stifled his turn. And again, one of those uh, both both on tempo. Uh, Dash loses it all of a sudden, and and that's all it takes is one little stumbling, uh, you know, stumble off the blocks here to to lose some of these matches here. Yeah, I uh, I actually brought a Mimi Icelander deck. It had Wounded Bull in it. Um, it had Insidious Chill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? Like two weeks before, probably would have been like, "What the hell are you doing?" That is, uh, that is meme. Of course, we learned we we learned far too late that Michael Hamilton just laid it all out there for everyone who wanted to hear on the Mannercast before nationals. He was, he he just broke it all down and. 
Well, <laughs> he was very transparent, and then everyone's shocked about it, and he's just yeah. been... It's classic late. Michael Hamilton. I actually have a funny story about that. He came on the Arsenal Pass podcast uh, probably is, gosh, a few months ago, but back when people... when. People didn't really know that, like, there was an idea that Icelander could beat Oldham. I was like, yeah, you said the Frost Axes, but it's a little bit more that goes into that, right? Like, you need the Amulet Devices and the Insidious Jewels, and there's, you're setting up a little bit more. And it's effectively this freezing point sometimes or the double back to bad Ice Eternals. So Hamilton comes on my podcast, and we're like, hey, can uh, can Icelander beat Oldham? And he's like, yeah, no problem. I was like, oh. Uh, some people say it's not possible. No, you just get uh, Amid of Ice and CS Chun, and then you set up this combo exactly. I was like, oh, awesome. Apparently, uh, he was testing with the Wolfpack at that time, and they had to have a little talk with Michael Hamilton <laughs> about <laughs> releasing private info. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I just laid out the entire combo, just like, no problem. Uh, it was great. Uh, yeah. It's funny. Nothing is sacred. Um, Moving on, we have uh, we have the upset of the century. Uh, Ethan Mansan over Pablo Pintor. Uh, this is what it looks like when Levi is doing things right. Uh, what a win. Uh, what a, a very interesting. If you actually look at that deck list, it really I, I, I think there's there's something there. Uh, I think Ethan's on to something. He's 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 blinged out to all hell with everything he's got going on. Uh, the sleeves, the mat, the blood debt counter, the whole nine yards. But very, very sound deck uh, coming coming in there. And obviously just hit on all cylinders against Pablo Pintor and Viscerai. Uh, people don't appreciate how much uh, how much damage Leviah can do. We've actually been playing it in Blitz a bit, um, and it's generally quite a good deck. Uh, mm-hmm. That being said, it's not worth... You kind of live and die by Scabbies, which is the hard part with that deck, I feel like. Um, but outside of that, it does a ridiculous amount of damage. I remember there was at one point back in the uh, pre first uh constructed vegas calling we were actually legitimately testing uh leviah in our in our testing sessions we were thinking about playing as a target chain because it did so much damage yeah and uh this this iteration of it i know this is i'm gonna mess up the name the the person who who won uh won a nationals with it he's a greek uh a player uh, his name escapes me, but Ethan uh, brought him on uh, to his stream and talked to him uh, about it. And this was, I know this was an iteration on there where specifically the rouse, the ancients and elimination of like howls from beyond um, really kind of cleans up a lot of uh, those, uh, some of the problem areas in like dead potential for dead hands uh, mm-hmm. there. Um, but it really, it's like the threat density is, through the roof and uh your your base almost feels uh i don't know it it feels a little unfair and uh, it showed it showed against viscerai i think just a casual 20 to close the game out um without without any special uh without any special things happening there um talking to ethan before at u.s nationals he was saying that uh levia is good for a loss on killing herself via blood debt one in every five games with previous iterations. I'm, I'm curious to know if this does better uh, mm. than, than what he was saying there. I did almost lose to uh, lose to Leviah 
with uh, at Pro Tour number two, piloted by Manson, of course. But yeah, just a r- ridiculous amount of damage. I was luckily I was playing Briar, so I was doing unfair things on my side of the board too. But it was a it's a close match for sure. Uh, last but not least, we have uh, Tark Patel over Tyler Horsepool. Uh, it is Fi versus Dromai, and Fi and Fi ate Dromai's lunch. Uh, it was it, it, it started off fast and uh, just Fi just overtook it. Um, Tyler Horsepool, one of the better players uh, in the world in flesh and blood. Uh, another one that got horribly disrespected by the panel. I think he was unanimous picking Patel. Uh, going into this, uh, unfortunately, uh, for Horsepool, uh, the doctor gets it done there uh, on fine. Yep. Um, it's going to be tough to, to win with uh, with a Jeremiah versus Fi. It's funny because uh, Tyler could have been potentially pretty well positioned into this uh, into the field, right? But he just happened mm-hmm. to go into the Fi round one, which is a little bit unlucky. That we we, we kind of had that matchup circled as a potential, uh, you know, whoever wins that one has a really good shot of taking taking the whole thing, given the rest of the brackets uh, as they fell. Uh, so still still in waiting in the wings, uh, presumably on Friday. Uh, we do have Matt Folks versus Michael Fang happening, and of course uh, Brendan versus Majin Bay. So looking forward to that one, or those two rather. Uh, moving on, Arsenal Pass, little-known podcast YouTube channel. I hear it might have some potential uh, going on. I think big things are in the horizon. Uh, it is staple programming for both uh, both on YouTube and as a podcast. You talked about how it, was, it started as a limited uh, a limited channel, but was the plan always to bring it right up and be ubiquitous with flesh and blood? I think uh, we always wanted to, to be successful, but in terms of like all the content we ended up doing and so the breadth of uh, of that content was definitely not planned. Uh, was intended to initially be just a limited a limited podcast um, and just a podcast at that. So we just ended up moving a lot, pretty heavy into YouTube with gameplay um, and sort of other miscellaneous videos. We toned that back a bit because the gameplay was a bit taxing and. I don't think it was our core competency, and I don't think it was what why we got into it at the first place. It felt like we started to kind of just try to do what we thought our audience wanted rather than what we wanted. Um, so we toned the gameplay back a bit. But yeah, I mean, nowadays it's mostly a podcast, and then we try to do a lot of deck techs, and we try to do a lot of deck techs via bringing other people on. Uh, it's just tough. The deck tech thing was was a big pivot for us because initially we did it with just us. Um, we, we really wanted to hit the sort of one a month. But... It just it doesn't it doesn't feel right or and uh, in a way if like we do a like a viscerai deck tech that Hayden won nationals with one week and then the next month it's like well, I guess we got to come up with a Katsu deck tech or something because that viscerai deck we put months of work into right the Kano deck that's also something that you know w- there was like a lot of work that went into that same with the chain deck the one that run all the we run a bunch of road to nationals with like. Those are decks that we were passionate about, and we put a lot of work and effort into. We we would stand behind that list and stand behind those 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 guides, right? Um, uh-huh. And if we're trying to hit one a month, it just wasn't really wasn't really scalable, and there would just be drastic differences in quality if we kind of did the model stuff. So we've sort of found a solution by bringing on other people, which I think is both good, uh, 
helps us create relationships with other players, other content creators in the game, and uh, yeah, bring other bright minds onto the onto the channel. It's actually been it's one of my favorite things to do now is bring sort of these um, these specialists to come on and talk about the deck. So it's Michael Hamilton with Old Tim. You got Tyler Horsepool with Prism, uh, Tarek Patel with Fi, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So um, yeah, Arsenal, <laughs> but to answer the question, yeah, Arsenal passed definitely. This definitely was not the plan. Um, I'm very grateful and humbled by the the success that we've had, um, and yeah, it it definitely brings a lot of uh, a lot of purpose to my life, which I think that I hope I never take that for granted because it's um, yeah, it means a lot. Absolutely. Uh, you talk about how you you kind of shifted primarily over to to the deck techs on the YouTube uh, there. How does it feel knowing that you guys have the the sway to tangibly affect the landscape of the meta when you do in fact publish a a deck tech or recommend a specific card? Uh, is that something that weighs on you in your own prep for events? And are you afraid of the Tarek knickknack type situation occurring? So what's funny is that we actually had that situation come up, but it was a bit of a different, it was a bit different, right? So there was one, at one point, um, I had played the calling Dallas um, and I was drafting like a tall, a tall Lexi deck. It was, it was criminally underdrafted. It was quite good against this sort of like force old him strategy. Um, and yeah, a lot of people were trying to force prior ice was kind of under, underappreciated because even the old him decks would go heavy into earth as well. So there was one podcast where we did that. Hayden was like, oh, what did you draft? It turns out like the weekend after that, I was in another limited calling uh, and I was going to probably force this deck again. And so at the time I was like, no, I don't want to say. So while I wasn't giving, I wasn't giving away bad information, like telling people to force Briar or force old him or do something like that. I did say I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't want to say it uh, because I didn't want to just give people that I was potentially drafting against in the later portions of the tournament or in top eight to just know the archetype that I was potentially getting into. Um, so we did get a little bit of flack for that. Um, kind of turned it kind of turned around, but that that was sort of our own knickknack brick brack situation happened quite a while ago. Uh, and I think from there, well, I don't think that I did anything wrong. I do think that you know it was over overly cautious, and it was probably not the right approach to take. Um, but I will say it did give us an appreciation to strongly avoid situations like that. I. I genuinely mean it when i say we try to say the most honest honest things possible on the podcast while we might not come on the podcast and say hey we're bringing kano to the pro tour tomorrow pack your spell void we'll say yeah i think we're going to play sort of a more unknown deck or we're not going to play chain or not going to play this but in our opinion chain is a very good deck starvo is incredibly well positioned like if you're bringing that to tournament i think that you're making a good choice etc etc so I think we just try to stay away from absolutes, saying this or that is the quote-unquote best deck. We try to say things that we fundamentally believe are true. And uh, I genuinely can say um, with 100% honesty that we've never tried to like mislead uh, anybody via our podcast. We have been wrong, though. And that's the tough part is by being wrong on that podcast, people will accuse you of that. And that's just the nature of the beast. Um, so we try to avoid that by just not talking in absolutes and, but yeah, we can be wrong and that happens all the time. And, uh, a shout out to Tarek. I, not, I do not, I don't want to give the impression that we're saying that Tarek misrepresented with Nick Nick, but 
the, when the opportunity to give him shit about that arises, kind of, kind of just take it and run with it. So uh, our um, a little anecdote is like uh, our strategy uh, for Team Dragon Shield is whatever deck Tarek puts up on the CFB. I love Tarek, by the way, but I'm I'm just gonna talk. I'm gonna do a little joke. Whatever deck he puts up on CFB, we just check it off our list of which one he's not playing. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, it, to his credit, he had posted a, uh, he posted a Dromai list, um, on, on CFB not too long ago coming into us nets and, um, we're, we're in a, um, we're in a, we're in a test server, um, that, you know, gets very hero centric. We have some of the best, so we have some of the best Romai players in the world are in that server. And when that list came out, right, the initial reaction at that point was like, ah, oh, here he goes. Uh, and uh, he actually, he had put in the Toma Findels in that one. And uh, it was starting to get like a very harsh reaction initially. Uh, fast forward about two weeks, right? The article has been posted. The Dromai players have, miraculously engineered their deck into something that carried almost card for card what he what he had posted on CFB and they were running it uh running it all over the place come US Nationals but that like specifically that tome was was like this isn't a red card right this isn't great for that but ends up being it's a really great card uh in that deck uh and ahead of the curve turns out he's really smart and knows what he's talking about sometimes yeah, I got a lot of flack uh, back in the early days of Chain for telling, saying on the podcast that you couldn't fatigue the deck and the snag was a bad card. And it took about four road to na- consecutive road to national wins for people to actually be like, oh, he's mm-hmm. not going to lie to us. But yeah, yeah, I mean, that's just going to happen. It's like, uh, it. I think it's just the nature of the beast. And all you can do is try to be as honest as possible and be careful not to you know, say things like, this is this is objectively correct or that is objectively incorrect or something like that. It's uh, tread lightly, but ultimately it just comes down to honesty. That's an excellent message. Uh, Arsenal Pass is it's it's a uh, it's as big as we get here uh, in flesh and blood in terms of content. What are your big plans uh, for the channel coming into rounding out 2022? And uh, if you have anything in the works for 2023 yeah so i think we're we're pretty happy with where the channel is um like i think flesh and blood has in terms of content has seen a bit of a decline recently whether it's set fatigue or just you know sort of the time in between sets and um you're seeing a bit of a lull dynasty coming out when it's coming out is going to maybe going to be rough you know it's uh, after the world championships and it's also sort of around that holiday season so uh, we haven't been seeing tremendous growth with the channel, but I think we're 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 content with what we're doing with it, right? Which is mostly the podcast and then doing this sort of high level competitive deck techs, um, you know, with either ourselves, which we'll probably do on our world deck, or with other players that are you know willing to come on and do that with us. The one thing I do I would like us to expand into, but it's just really tough, and uh, I've been searching for someone to help us with this. Is basically into YouTube Shorts. So I don't know if any of you have YouTube on your iPhone, but if you do, you probably understand the sort of crack that is YouTube Shorts, right? Like I can hardly watch a YouTube video anymore, and I have to actively sort of 
prevent myself from going into the app and just scrolling. They're effectively TikToks, right? So it's this shorter, less than 60 second video form of content. This is usually content that's ripped from a YouTube video that gets put on Instagram Reels, Facebook effectively Reels, YouTube Shorts, TikTok, um, and just other. It's so effective and it's extremely clear that a lot of the other, a lot of rising, massively successful rising podcasts are utilizing that to great effect. Um, and I would like for us to be able to do that. We, unfortunately, we need to find an editor to help us do it. And it's actually quite, it's quite challenging to find someone who's economical enough can, and can achieve that. But I would like to expand into that, into that sphere, um, a sort of TBD to see if we can do it. Uh, you mentioned YouTube shorts. I do have to shout out Brew Tapcast, uh, Brew Tapcast, who has been doing a card a day, flesh and blood YouTube short every day without missing a beat. He is on day 289. Um, and he is nothing but consistent uh, with those. That might be the, I, I honestly don't know what else is happening with the channel, but to your, to your point, I do know that he is posting those YouTube shorts uh, like a menace. Uh, I do get, I, I, I'm a TikTok guy. And I get lost in those shorts, and then I forget that like it's not TikTok. I start getting frustrated because the format's a little different, like in terms of like the user interface. And I'm like, what's wrong with my TikTok? And it's like, ah, oh, ah, oh, I went down the rabbit hole. God damn it! Yeah. Every time I go to watch a like, not every time, but often when I go to watch a YouTube video on my phone, I get sucked into shorts. Like, they're they're powerful, and there's some sort of dopamine interaction there that is just criminal in how effective it is. Um, and yeah, I think that like content is actually moving in that direction. Although it's kind of depressing, like mm-hmm. it's so effective. Like you see all the major podcasts just like double, triple down on this kind of content where they're ripping out like, you know, uh, just interesting, interesting, you know, shorter conversations or, or kind of like shock, like lines and responses and they're putting them on shorts and uh, we're just seeing like some of these podcasts blow up over it. You writing that down, Adam? We gotta, we gotta get on shorts. Yeah, I'm already thinking about how I can edit that. <laughs> yeah, right. It's like, how can we make this work? <laughs> uh, you know, not, not to, not to talk too much. Uh, shop. I was actually kind of, it, it's something I was actually thinking about as well. I think we might, I could, I can, I can talk uh, next, next week guests and all that kind of crap uh, on it and use it as a kind of announcing vehicle. You seen Team Covenant started doing it. So uh, I remember Team Covenant posted about like, so I don't know if it was like a quarterly or like a yearly thing. They had a bit of a, like a retreat where they were developing new strategies on how to grow their audience without sort of selling out. Team Covenant's pretty big on that. Um, and now they post shorts all the time. And it's it's like Steven or Zach and that mm, little, side, mm-hmm, that little mm-hmm. side camera is like, mm, yep, by the yep, way, guys. Right. It, and yep. it's really effective. <laughs> it's really, it does. Does it? It does. It, it endears Steve uh, to me. He seems to check out from Flesh and Blood every once in a while, yeah. but then he gets in that little side camera. Um, all right. Uh, on our way to wrapping things up, uh, it's kind of non sequitur. Uh, what is something that people might not know about you that you'd like them to know? Uh, guests in the past have used this to talk about uh, movies they like, video games, food, hobbies, a hidden talent, uh, whatever, whatever, no limits here, but some, something unknown that you'd like known. 
I don't know if it's something that I would like known, but it is something that's just a little bit bizarre, uh, or it's just unusual. And so I spent, um, basically when I was about like 15 years old, I went to boarding school, which is not the interesting part. But after that, I started doing a lot of this like kind of weird traveling. So my idea of sort of leisure and travels, I just picked my life up for about two to three months and just go move somewhere completely new and just live there, not really knowing anything, uh, but usually trying to know about one person. So I've lived... Uh, for these periods of two to three months, I've lived in Thailand, Istanbul, Turkey, Moscow, Russia, uh, and kind of all throughout Southeast Asia as well. Um, and I did that mostly through my college years, a bit in high school, and then a bit after, before I was sort of replanted back in Texas because I had some medical stuff come up. But that was sort of the thing that I used to do is I would go just move to Russia for three months, live in Moscow. And I don't know anything. I don't know any Russian. I barely know any Russian people. I, my, my family is from sort of suburbia, Texas. And it was just like, Something about that was really attractive to me to just get as far away as possible and just being like the most unique kind of cultural situation, right? And just live. Um, so yeah, I did that. I did that a lot, and it's still something that I want to get back to. And that Euro trip was kind of like that, right? It was uh, about a five week trip, sort of gallivanting, gallivanting through Europe. And um, yeah, something about that to me is like that's. I feel like in my life, that's where I've done most of my living. Yeah, most of my living with the apostrophe. Feel that. Feel that. Feel that. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. All right. We we did it. I thought that we did that. That was actually very. That was that was smooth. Is what it was. Uh, other than my little hiccup on the question there, but uh, this is now the time where you can uh, you can plug your stuff. Plug whatever you got. Give me give me your socials. Give me all the links you got. Sure. The only social I'll give out is uh, probably my Twitter. I'm uh, at Brendan APG. I tweet every now and then. Sometimes I do Twitter spaces with uh, Mr. Nick Nackerberg back himself, Jeteric Patel. Um, obviously, Arsenal Pass, I co-host with Hayden Dale. Um, it is a sort of a, a podcast, I guess, that focuses on the competitive side of the game. We have a YouTube channel as well. We do a lot of deck techs on uh, you know, upcoming decks, deck guides, you know, specialists, people like Michael Hamilton, Tarek Patel, Tyler Horsepool. So check that out if that's something you're interested in. Um, and yeah, I appreciate uh, I appreciate the opportunity to come on this podcast. It's been a great time. It was a great conversation. And I wish you all uh, you know, the most success moving forward. Hopefully you move into shorts and you absolutely just crush Arsenal Pass because we can't adapt and get into shorts ourselves. <laughs> But we do, uh, we do consider Arsenal Pass is is basically our number one influence in starting the podcast. So, in a way, you're kind of like our dad. So, thank you very much for for coming on, Dad. I appreciate uh, everything that uh, you guys have done for us uh, and influenced us. Um, <laughs> no, no problem. Um, now we're gonna plug our stuff, Adam. Right? This is yeah. this is the time where I do this. Excellent. Uh, you can find us on YouTube at the Combat Chain Podcast. You can find us anywhere you're streaming uh, audio podcasts, wherever wherever you consume that audio. We're on all of the platforms. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at the Combat Chain. You can find myself at Pat Smash Good, and you can find Adam at Fomtoolery TCG. Now, Brendan, we have one more piece of business before we close out. 
We ask every guest to participate in our little outro here, and so we're going to ask you to also participate. Uh, I am going to say until next week, and then in unison, we're all going to say we're closing the combat chain. Nice and nice and hammy. Is that something uh, you can do with us? I can try. Excellent, excellent. All right. Thanks again to Brendan Patrick for coming on to the combat chain. Uh, it has been a real pleasure. And Adam, I think that is going to do it for us. So until next week, we're closing the combat chain. Thank you. Thank you, Brendan Patrick. Yes, thank you so much. Oh, thank you all. That was a great conversation.